This is from Ajahn Chah. He said, our original heart or mind shines like pure, clear water with the sweetest taste. But if the heart is pure, is our practice over? No, we must not cling even to this purity, but go beyond all concepts, all good and bad, all pure and impure, beyond self and no self, beyond birth and death, release it all. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, but what is this Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body, any history, any image. The Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, was never born and never died. And this timeless Buddha is your true home, your abiding place. When we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and Sangha, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teacher, proclaiming the one true nature of life. It's become very still at this point in the retreat, after four weeks or more, or a week and a half, for those who came for the second part. And the stillness is quite palpable and very beautiful. And the stillness in some way invites us to open to that which Ajahn Chah speaks about, an inner stillness, a unmoving, receptive, awake, present heart. Now we know in the course of this that all kinds of things rise and fall experiences of pleasure and pain and of confusion and clarity. It's as if there's this great ocean and then there are different waves and different weather patterns and storms that come and go. But underneath all that, there's a place of rest. This place of rest which is sometimes described as the awakened heart, the timeless, the sure heart's release. When you read in the Buddhist description of how one opens to this, one of the most common languages to use is that of the factors of enlightenment that there are seven natural, inherent, radiant qualities of mind, of heart, that as we let go and enter more deeply into our true nature, these arise, they shine forth. One day, Ananda or one of the attendants to the Buddha came and said one of the 
monks in the monastery is very, very ill. What should we do? We've given him medicine. We've tried to take care of him. Are there any teachings? Any advice? And the Buddha said, yes. Go to the monk and recite to him the seven factors of enlightenment, slowly, each one, and remind him that the illness is temporary, but that these speak to the true nature of his own heart and mind. And as this particular sutra describes, the seven factors of enlightenment were recited to this very sick monk. And as he heard each one, he began to remember it and feel it and touch it in his being. And by the end of this, several of them, he was feeling much better. And several more, he felt even better. And by the end of all seven of them, he felt almost well and maybe almost enlightened. These qualities, the factors of enlightenment, have two different groups, three that are active and three that are stabilizing, and then one in the middle that balances these qualities. The quality in the middle that balances them all is mindfulness, a presence, an awareness, could almost be translated as a sacred presence. It's that which knows what is true in this moment without reaction or judgment or grasping or expecting or contradicting. It doesn't mean calm. Mindfulness knows when it's calm and when it's not. It doesn't mean concentrated. It means resting in this present an amazing moment exactly as it is and knowing it as it is. And this quality of presence or sacred presence of mindfulness is the gateway to the deathless, it's called, because it allows all of life to rise and fall, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, the vast suffering and the unspeakable beauty open to it all. When John Kabat-Zinn, who many of you know has been teaching mindfulness in hospitals now and hundreds of them throughout the country, first opened his clinic, the mindfulness-based clinic in the medical school in Massachusetts. He got some offices down in the basement. He's going to teach mindfulness. And he went to the other doctors at the hospital. He actually went and did a presentation for rounds or grand rounds for the doctors, described what he was going to do in the clinic, and then offered an invitation. He said, I would like you to send down to me all the patients that you can't help anymore, the ones that you've tried, antibiotics, and surgery and the other things of modern medicine, but somehow you haven't been able to help. Send me the hardest cases. 
And then as he told me the story, I don't know that he said it to the doctor in that meeting, he said, because I have the strongest medicine of all. And that medicine is the medicine of being with what is true. Whatever their circumstance, whatever their difficulty, when they came down to the basement to be with John, he called it the big guns, we've got the final medicine. Whatever your situation, we can help you because we can help you be with what is true and open to that in a way where you're not struggling and wrestling and fighting and feeling despair and pain and so forth. Mindfulness is amazing because in a moment it brings balance. Its nature is balance. Its nature is ease and space. You get caught in something something petty, something big, something about the meals or your body or your imagination or how your meditation should be. And then there's a moment where you say, really caught, wasn't I? And in that moment, it's as if you step out of it, mindfulness becomes this openness and you simply see it for what it is. And that is freedom. And then you say, yeah, but I've been practicing for days or weeks and I'm mindful some of the time, but some of the time I'm not. It's not working. I want my money back. (laughs) You'll notice that when you come in on the first day of the retreat, if you're honest, you're probably mindful 1% of the time. And if you really struggle, maybe a few percent. Now, it may not feel much better. You may still feel like you space out half the time or three-quarters of the time. But think about it. Before you were here one or two percent of the time, now you're here a quarter of the time. That is an improvement of 800 percent. That means 800 percent you're more alive and present in this life. And it's enough. It's enough to show you how life is and to bring you freedom. Mindfulness is a spacious openness. And we've been using the noting practice. Fear comes, fear, fear. Feel it in the body, sense it in the mind. Give it space to open. Fear, instead of running away. Oh, fear, I know you. You're back again. Fear, fear. And let it move. The breath comes. Breathing in, short breath, a long breath. Breathing out, a short breath, a long breath. Feeling the space between breaths, noticing the sensations arise again and pass away. The space of awareness. Thoughts come. I like those thoughts. I wish those thoughts would go away. Aversion, liking, disliking comes. Ah, you bow to it. There's thoughts. There's aversion. There's liking and disliking. The space that allows for it all. More fear comes. Fear Fear, fear. Ooh, I don't like this aversion, aversion. Fear, and you just give each one space. Aversion, see how big it is. Let it open. Let it fill as much room as it wants. Aversion, aversion. Ah, it opens. Gee, feeling much better. Glad that's gone. Oh, relief, relief. I did really good. Pride, pride. (laughs) Back to the breath again. Remember when you're mindful that one of three things happen. Either things will go away, 
or they'll stay the same for a while, or they'll get worse, right? And that's not your job. Fear, fear, oh, huh, terror, terror, right? <laughs> Feel like I'm dying, 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 okay? Feel that, wow, I died, far out, far out, far out. <laughs> to note is an invitation to open to what is true. And the Buddha said that if you pay attention in this way for seven years or seven months or even seven days of just noticing each thing as it rises and passes, that even seven days is enough to completely transform your life. It brings a freedom to pay attention. Freedom in the mind and the heart. I remember sitting with my father a few years ago as he was dying and he was so frightened. And I talked to him about what happens when you die. He was a scientist, he thought nothing, you just go back to the earth. And I told him about all these other stories and my own experiences of out of the body and past life memories and stuff. I said, you know, you never know for sure, but most of the people in the world believe, and my experience seems to show, that the consciousness is not dependent on the body, but you'll, you know, you just wait and see. I said, and he listened for a bit. He was sort of, um, he listened charitably. He gave me a little bit of attention for it. And I said, well, you wait. And I said, and if it happens, just like I said, remember, I told you so. (laughs) But mostly he was terrified. He was so frightened. And he didn't want teachings, and he couldn't do meditation. I tried to teach him meditation. 75 years of practicing paranoia is not overcome by 15 minutes of meditation instruction. It doesn't work that way. That's why we practice now. But what he wanted when he got so frightened at night, he kept saying, please don't go home. Don't go back yet. Stay with me. Everyone else was gone. 12, 1, 2 in the morning. Please stay. He simply wanted somebody to be there, and I even held his hand, which was so rare in our family. He wanted someone to be there who wasn't so afraid, who wasn't afraid of pain, who wasn't afraid of the death that was there. It made such a difference. That's mindfulness. That is that presence. In any circumstance, tell you one more story. Ruth Dennison, one of the senior teachers in our community, in our lineage, been taking care of Henry, her husband, now because he has, Henry has Alzheimer's. And Henry was staying in the house they have in Hollywood while Ruth runs her little center way out in the desert. And because Henry was losing his memory and ability to take care of himself, He would leave the stove on. He burned down part of the house one time. He would wander around the streets. And he didn't want to get taken care of or go in some assisted care facility. So she'd leave the retreats all day. And then she'd drive four hours and take care of Henry part of the night and do that. And then she'd drive back and do her retreat. She's a very um, indomitable kind of energy, Ruth. And she was doing this back and forth over a number of months, not knowing what to do. Henry said, you can't put me anywhere. I stay here. And she said, yes, yes, you know, I'll take care of you. And she was doing this. She went to Oregon somewhere in the middle of this period 
Henry now has been moved, but during this very difficult period, to teach. She flew into Portland. She came to a room full of people to give a Dharma talk before her retreat. And she got up there and she started to talk about the Dharma is to be with things the way they are, absolutely, just as they are. She went on, embodied attention. She said, let me tell you a story. Have I told you what happened with Henry? And she talked about his Alzheimer's and how he couldn't remember where he was. He wasn't able to pay attention. And the stove was left on and part of the house burned down. And she went on and talked more about the Dharma being present the way things are. And ten minutes later, she said, and I have to tell you about Henry. And she launched into the whole story all over again. And he didn't know what he was doing, and his early Alzheimer's, and the fire, and the burn the house. People are thinking, hmm, what's going on here? She said, so you have to be present just here in the moment. It goes on a little more. You know, darling, you just have to be here teaching. And she said, let me tell you what happened about Henry. And she started the third time. And at this point, several people stood up to leave, like this old woman is losing it, right? And the three or four who stood up to leave, they were going out the door, and she said, wait a minute, in her German accent, wait a minute, you just wait, you, before you leave. Before you go out, I want you to look at your expectations. You are leaving. What did you expect when you came here? Can't you just come and be with what you find, or do you have some expectations? And everyone was sort of paused because it was a little tense in that moment, right? <laughs> and then she said, and tonight you have a chance to see something really remarkable. You have a chance to see a senior Dharma teacher fail because I can't remember what I have been saying. And they sat back down. And she's fine, actually. Her memory is as good as ever. It's just that she hadn't slept for days and days taking care of Henry, and it was sort of situational. She couldn't forget anything. But in that moment, it really was her practice. She said, this is the way it is. You have a chance to see a senior Dharma teacher fail. Imagine that. Just to be with things as they are with that level of freedom. So this is the invitation of mindfulness, and it grows and it deepens as we give ourselves to practice. And then from it grow, naturally, three positive qualities. The first, or three active qualities, is the inherent energy or liveliness of our practice, of our life. Sometimes also spoken about as the effort But it's not effort. It's really the aliveness. Security is mostly a superstition, says Helen Keller. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And here we are, a long way into this retreat with about 10 days left to practice. You are at the beginning of a 10-day retreat. I mean, most people work hard and do all this to to get their time off to come finally to a 10-day retreat. You're at the beginning of a 10-day retreat. 
You know a lot can happen on a 10-day retreat. You've been to them. How to tap into this energy or make wise effort. It's not to coast at this point because we are very still and we are very present. And there could come, okay, I've done it, you know, I'm, I'm on the downhill run of the bobsled or something. It's not that at all. You have become quite present. And this is the time to surrender with some courage, to give yourself fully each day, each moment, to just where you are. Not to struggle with it, but to open to it. With the balance, the balance of the lute string that's not too loose and not too tight, but just where we are. This is from Annie Lamott, the humorist, who lives in the neighborhood here. She wrote, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour, eight words over and over. And every line feels different, feels cared about and experienced as she is singing. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes, 45 more to go. At the end of the hour, she is still singing each line distinctly, word by word, until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure with attention to each syllable as life sings itself. But that kind of attention is the prize. It's a privilege to be here in the space that you created to to be able to be here and, and rest in the space that's come about through your work in this retreat. We sometimes get afraid, oh, if I do it, if I give myself, if I surrender, I'll run out of energy. I won't be able to do it. But it's not like we have some little battery in here that runs down. Oh, if I love too much, too much metta, I'll run out of metta. It doesn't work that way. As we open ourselves more and more to each moment, the practice itself opens. And it really doesn't matter what happens as you sit and walk. The content is pretty much irrelevant. Yeah, there are moments that are pleasant or blissful or painful or insightful. As many of the insights come when things are painful as when they're pleasant. But in the end, it matters if we are present for it as it is. As Pema Chodron says, It's very helpful to realize that being here, sitting in meditation, doing the simple everyday things, walking, bathing, using the toilet, eating, is actually all that we need to be fully awake, fully alive, fully human. This body with its aches and pains, and this mind with all that it thinks, if we'd looked around to find out what would be the greatest wealth that we could possibly possess, in order to lead a decent, completely fulfilling, good, energetic, inspired, and awakened life, it would all be right here. And so this quality, this factor of enlightenment, comes through this longing to open, to be fully present. And more and more you can sense it as we sit and walk and pay attention to each moment in each thing.
I have a story which I won't read you. I sometimes read and retreat about this prisoner who's been in a maximum security prison for years and years and finally started to practice the Dharma. He said it was so crowded, what he had to do was clean out the broom closet early in the morning and close the door because it's also so noisy in the prisons. And he would sit in the broom closet. People thought I was weird, he said, but I knew it was important to do. And then they gave me my own cell. And I got up at five in the morning and started to do my hundred thousand prostrations. And the guards would come by, seeing me bow on the floor and get up over and over again. They thought it was pretty weird. But this is my practice and this is my temple. We have this longing to open and it knows how to do it. You don't have to make it open. All you have to do, all we have to do, is be present again and again and allow this moment to open as it will. Effort, energy. The second of these active qualities is called dhamma investigation. To see things clearly, to know what is so for ourselves. To look with the eyes of a Buddha. As Krishnamurti said, when the mind is still, tranquil, not struggling, nor seeking any solution, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. When we see just truthfully how things are, we become free. That we don't own or possess or control. That we can't grasp it. When we see, it is the truth that liberates. But we have to look. Part of the looking James talked about is not knowing. Socrates said this, to be uncertain is to be uncomfortable, but to be certain is to be ridiculous. It's the don't know. Let me look and see. And when you do, you see painful things and pleasant things. You weep and you laugh. Go ahead, writes one Indian saint. Light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out. Because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. This quality of investigation has a kind of daring to it. What is mind? Who am I? How does this breath work? The breath breathes itself. What is this body when I feel into it? It turns into pinpricks and needles and throbbing and sometimes it's solid and sometimes it opens and sometimes there's more of a self and sometimes there's less of a self. Sometimes it seems that I'm watching and sometimes I forget and I'm not there at all. Who are you? What is a feeling? How does it rise and fall like the waves of the ocean? What would it mean to see with the eyes of a Buddha, with innocence and wisdom? Look at this life, thoughts coming and going, 
plans, memories, sense of self appearing and disappearing. And what does it mean to be free in the midst of all of that? Here's a poem I like to read. It's kind of a reminder of where we come from. It's called Reverse Living. Life is tough. Takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. What do you get at the end of it? Death, some reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. (laughs) Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. You become a little kid again, you play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb and you spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. Isn't that beautiful? That's where we started. We were a gleam in someone's eye, and we go through this whole dance. Who are you? Where were you before you were born? And where do you go to? Is this you, this body, these thoughts? So this quality is the mind that's daring to open and really be present as things arise and pass, as self itself comes into being and disappears. And the third of these awakening qualities is joy or rapture. At first, practice may seem what Alan Watts called a grim duty. Someone else said, there's a certain kind of person for whom the divine gets mixed up with exercise and vitamins. (laughs) You know what I mean. There's this sense somehow that you've got to make yourself better. Liberation doesn't have anything to do with changing yourself, making yourself better. That's the small self, the ego or the body of fear, feeling it's not okay, making self-improvement tasks. This quality of rapture, piti, of laughter, in my teacher used to speak of it, it's called Jai Pong Sai in the Thai language, which means a lightness of heart. And the Buddha was called the happy one. There was a sense of joy and ease. Joy for no reason, just to be alive in the fog, in the sunlight, to take a step. You know what it's like if you've ever had the experience of having a maybe fatal illness or a near accident. And then all of a sudden, after the accident, you realize you will survive or you go through the treatment or whatever it is and you realize, I'm going to live. And in a moment, things become so beautiful. Wow, I'm here. Look at this. And it's that kind of joy. Do not sit with, long with sadness, my friend, says Rumi. When you go into a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. There's a book Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about love and the Dharma. 
And as I heard about it at Plum Village some years ago, he started to give these teachings. And he was going on in his usual Thich Nhat Hanh way about nature and interdependence and the teachings he gives so eloquently. And people were there, but kind of um, half listening. You know how it is when your teacher said the same thing over and over, even it's incredibly profound and wonderful. Okay, he's doing interdependence again or something. They were listening. And partway through the middle of this talk, he paused for a moment and he looked up and he said, she was just 20 when I first saw her walking down the temple steps and fell in love. And all of a sudden, everyone who'd been sitting listening to interdependence half asleep, their eyes got wide open (laughs) and they sat up and he told a love story of this nun that he'd fallen in love with, interspersed with the teachings on interdependence (laughs) and non-attachment. And he got everybody's attention. There are five grades of rapture. Trembling, vibrating, thrilling, deep, cold, all different kinds. Different qualities of happiness that come. And they're part of the natural opening of the heart and the mind. And it's so mysterious. Here I read you something from Lewis Thomas, the naturalist. At home, 4 p.m. today, says the female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacul hormone, a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. But it's doubtful if he has any awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it has become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling the scent gradient of bombacil molecules, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. And then when he reaches his destination, It may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidence, the greatest piece of luck. Well, bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) I think of it, the Dalai Lama's laughter and his joy that's there, even with all the burdens and responsibilities. He said, if we can't be happy, what good is our practice? And this is the happiness that allows for tears and pain and loss and gain, all of those things. But something that's deeper than that and more precious. And these qualities of rapture and investigation and energy are balanced by the last three stabilizing qualities. Concentration, which really means a wholeness a depth that comes through it, a steadiness of heart and unwaveringness. And whether you're a potter with a potter's wheel or a cook or a computer programmer, whether you speak about doing business or making love, the wholeness with which you bring yourself to that task is the quality of concentration, of being there fully, And when we become concentrated, 
It's as if other things, past, future, remembering, planning, begin to drop away. And even the body, that little sense of self, starts to relax and open. Concentration has a relaxedness to it. I see some people walking at times, doing their walking meditation, and I think of a clipper ship with all the sails out, just in the right breeze moving across the horizon. This elegant sense of just taking a step in exactly that moment, the body and mind and heart all present for it. It's a collection, a steadiness. And of course, you have to come back to it. Gandhi called this training, Blessed Monotony. The stars and the planets in their orbits, all of this. And to learn concentration, which is this great art for computer programming or cooking or lovemaking or whatever you would choose, for deepening in oneself is the willingness to relax and steady and repeat over and over. And then fear and guilt and worry and plan, those come and you say, oh, fear, and you bow to it. Oh, there's guilt, there's planning. You bow to each one and you steady with those. And then back again to the next step or the next breath. There's a regal quality to it. Rilke. This clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. And to die, which is a letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water which receives him gaily and flows joyfully under and after him, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, each moment more fully grown, more like a king, composed farther and farther on. Concentration has a quality of dignity of stability, not the swan walking, but the swan resting and swimming on the water. And you can feel how it's grown in you, this steadiness. And you want to let it deepen. It's a surrender, moment by moment. And then it comes and goes in waves. You can't cling to it. But you can allow it or invite this natural quality by your presence, by your dignity, by your steadiness. concentration. It has in it a kind of an intimacy. When we're with the breath in an intimate way, it's concentration. When we're with a sensation as it's unfolding in the body with an intimate attention, it's concentration. When we take a bite of an apple or pear, Chewing, tasting, swallowing. There's mindfulness, there's joy, there's investigation. And the wholeness, that surrender into it, is concentration. Rest in it, trust it, allow that to grow more full over these days. It's not something to grasp. It's a moment-to-moment concentration. 
the two last qualities. There's concentration, calm. There is an innate calm in our natural mind, our natural heart. Just as the natural heart and mind is steady and collected in concentration, so too there is a stillness of the wise. From Ajahn Chah. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. A depth to it, a stillness. And I see it. I see it in the bodies of people who come in in interviews. Even people who come in and say, today it was a little bit of a slog or there was something that disturbed me or something. Still, the way you come and sit down is really different than a week ago or a month ago. And part of this calm is learning to trust, learning to swim, to let go. There's an ease to it. Meditation is really like swimming. You know, when you were a kid and you didn't know how to swim and you'd get put in the water and you'd flail your arms around, most people did anyway, frightened that you would sink. And then at some moment, maybe someone held you a little bit or you let go just to test and floated. And all of a sudden, a moment comes and you realize, whoa, I float. This holds me up. If I stop wiggling around so much, not a lot above water, but enough so I can breathe, I actually can trust it. And it's a fabulous moment in your childhood to realize that you can trust the water and that you float. When we let go in that way and relax our expectations of what should be and surrender and trust just what is in this moment without anxiety about non-perfection, is the third Zen patriarch's phrase, that it's not the way it should be, with letting go of that anxiety that it's not how it should be. The breath breathes itself, the thoughts think themselves, the body can trust and rest, and we stop the conflict with the world. We stop the war, as Ajahn Chah said. His phrase often was the phrase, just this much, just this moment, just this breath, this step, this arising of sensation or feeling, this thought that comes and passes away, unpretentious, simple, easy. When Thich Nhat Hanh came here to visit, which he has to teach several times, Big crowds come, you know. First it was a thousand, then it was like two thousand people. They'd be eating lunch and chattering away, and then Thich Nhat Hanh would walk out. And the way that he took each step, there was such a sense of calm and presence about him that just the way he walked in, 
changed everybody. People became calm and quiet. I remember Richard Baker, the Roshi in San Francisco, when he first invited Thich Nhat Hanh to come and teach here in San Francisco. Um, and we all went to Tassajara and had a kind of Buddhist teachers meeting, practice period with them together. And Richard Baker tried to describe Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, he's a cross between a snail, a cloud, and a piece of heavy machinery, <laughs> which I thought was a wonderful description because he was light like a cloud. You could feel it very empty, some ways slow like a snail, and absolutely indomitable, absolutely unstoppable, this quality of presence. But it was very calm and completely attentive to what came in each moment. We are naturally calm when we let go, like the water that comes to rest. We are naturally concentrated when we give ourselves to the moment. There's a natural joy and happiness that comes when we open and see and investigate. There's a natural energy which is our aliveness. And all of these end in the last of these qualities of enlightenment, which is equanimity. This perfect balance in the eternal present. I mean, where are we going? There's only one place, here. All the rest is an idea, a thought. Equanimity is not withdrawing from the world, and it's not an indifference but it's a resting with balance in the midst of all things. As Ramana Maharshi said when he was dying, sage, and his disciples said, please, please don't leave us. Ramana, please. You know, you've been our guru for so long. Bhagavan, don't leave us. And he looked back quizzically and he said, but where could I go? Where could I go? You know, you've been out of touch with the world for a long time now. I read you a poem. At first, he refused to deliver junk mail because it was stupid, all those deodorant ads, money-making ideas and contests. Then he began to doubt the importance of the other mail he carried. He began to select first-class mail randomly for (laughs) non-delivery. After he had finished his mail route each day, he would return home with his handful of letters and put them in the attic. He didn't open them, didn't even look at them again. It was as if he were an agent of fate, capricious and blind. In the several years before he was caught, friends vanished, certain engagements were broken, marriages failed, business deals fell through, Toward the end, he became more and more bold, deleting houses, then whole blocks from his route. (laughs) He began to feel he'd been born into the wrong era. If only he could have been a Pony Express rider galloping into some prairie town with an empty bag. (laughs) Or the first runner from ancient Marathon collapsing in the streets of Athens, gasping, no news. (laughs) 
I would go on retreat and did. I did a, a retreat in a little hut, one room for 14 months or be in Asia for long periods of practice or at IMS for three months and things like that. No papers, nothing. And I'd come back, say, well, what's happened at first, you know? Nothing happened. <laughs> one or two things, maybe. There's one small noteworthy historical event. But actually, you didn't miss a thing. Isn't that fantastic? Equanimity knows this. It rests in the eternal, in that which is timeless. When you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. That's Suzuki Roshi. Things change, and when you find yourself in composure with this truth, that is nirvana. Sometimes people think of nirvana as someplace else. But actually the Buddha lived in nirvana for 45 years, and he walked and collected food and he ate, and he spoke with people all in nirvana. Fantastic. You too can experience this. When you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. Perceive that you are not yet begotten, says Hermes Trismegistus, the alchemical sage. Picture that you're not even born yet, that you're in the womb, that you're young, that you're old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Hold all of these at once, all times, in this one place, all that appears and disappears, and you can begin to see with the eye of the divine. And it is given to us to see that way. We have the eye of the Buddha that can see that nothing is needed and nothing is in excess. We too can rest in the midst of this dance of life. You live in illusion and the appearance of things, says Kala Rinpoche. But you do not know this. When you understand this, you will see there is a reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Those are words. The experience that your practice invites you to is to notice the play of the seasons, the movement of mind, the dance of life from this openness that is your Buddha nature. Did I talk about Ramdas in one of my earlier talks here? I'll tell you a couple of stories, kind of by way of ending. You all know that Ramdas had this major stroke a couple of years ago. Very, very difficult. They thought for sure, his doctors thought for sure he would die. It was such a major hemorrhage. But somehow he survived. I visited him a number of times in the hospital. 
And I brought him a picture of Ramana Maharshi, that photo that's of just the face that's in the picture on the altar in the back in the center of those beautiful eyes, because I knew he loved Ramana, and because Ramana's silent. And I thought, well, if Ramdas can't speak anymore, which he couldn't for a time, then he can remember that Ramana taught without words mostly. He just looked at people with so much love and acceptance, it changed their lives. So I brought this big, beautiful picture of Ramana for his hospital wall. He couldn't talk at that point. Sometime later, I called him to come visit when he moved back to his house and was still getting rehabilitation therapy. And he could speak a bit then. And he said, oh, Jack, with these long pauses, you know, I'm glad you called. And we talked a little bit. Can I come visit? And he said, thank you for the um, picture of, uh, of uh, Ramana. Each word he had to grasp to find. You know, and then he said he wanted to give me a picture of his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, in exchange. It's kind of like a, you know, I thought that's a nice gift, a nice symbolic gesture, because I gave him that. And he said, yeah, it's like uh, uh, baseball cards. I'll give you one uh, Neem Karoli Baba and a Mickey Mantle for Ramana Maharshi and... Uh, Ted Williams. And the minute he said that, I knew he was okay. No matter what else happened. This is that place that sees the dance. And he came here for this benefit we had last spring for him. 800 people in the meadow. and People were teaching and meditating and singing. And finally he got up, his wheelchair on the stage, and spoke very haltingly. He said, they told me that it would be tacky to come to my own benefit. So here I am. (laughs) And then he said, this has been such a teacher for me. He said, I've had so many lives. He said, in the 1960s, he said, I was a professor, Harvard professor. He said, and then I died. He said, "I, I keep dying. And, and I wasn't that anymore, and I became the LSD guy with Tim Leary. Turn on, tune in, drop out. This whole world. And then that was gone. Another life, I went to India. Baba Ramdas, the guru, in robes and beads for a long time. That passed away. Started the Seva Foundation. 20 years of service and giving. He said, I was in the helping business. Books, how can I help? the path of compassion. He said, now I'm at home and people have to pick me out of bed and put me back into bed. They have to wipe my bottom. He said, and I can tell you, it's a lot easier to be the one helping than it is the one who's helped. He said, but all that's gone. And then this stroke happened and I died. And now I've been reborn into a disabled body. And in my closet are my old golf clubs and my cello. There's a sports car in the driveway. And if I think I'm the guy who should drive that car and play the cello, I'm so unhappy. But that's not me. That was somebody else. You got to take the curriculum, he said. You got to be here 
now. And then he said, he looked out, and he said, you know, I've learned so much from this that if I had it to do over again, I'm not sure I would say no to this. He said, they say that suffering is grace, and maybe this is just heavy grace. It was extraordinary. Talk about resting in the place of equanimity, the eye of a Buddha, to see the sorrows and the beauty rise and fall like the change of the seasons, and to trust that this heart that we've been given, this human heart, is big enough to contain, to open to, to rest in the midst of it all. That is your invitation. And there's a deep wisdom that grows each hour and each day that we practice with all these changing experiences. The factors of enlightenment are who you are. As you let go and trust more, they blossom out of you. And then it becomes like the Chinese teapot. You know, tea in China is so precious. And there are families where they have teapots that they've kept for hundreds of years, their favorite teapot, from one generation to another to another. And it's said that a teapot is not really seasoned until it's at least a hundred years old. And then you don't even have to put in the tea. You just pour in water and the pot makes tea all by itself. You just sit and you're a Buddha all by yourself. Let's sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.